When we die in our country, we suddenly find ourselves transformed into roses and poems. We become beginnings of an end. We whirl in mad wind and come on the other side of the earth. We unfetter light from heavy chains of smog. We unravel mysteries of darkness. At our homes, in small gatherings, we become occasional mentions. In conversations we are no more part of. We remain, however, centric to the conversations we are part of no more as us, but as milestones of distant cities. We become writings on the wall. We become reminders of Sundays. We become shuddering sighs. We become salt of tears. Our names, etched on our gravestones, are vouched upon by mothers. We become revered. We become vision of seers. We are dreamed of and deciphered. We inhabit rustle of autumn. We fly with pigeons. We never really go away. We never vanish. In our absences, we stay on, possessed by the disease of hope, as fragmented memories. Kashmiri poet and my friend Omar Bhatt kindly let me use a poem that he wrote for the Critical Muslim magazine. It's called We Don't Fear Death Anymore. Last July, journalist Tarushi Ashwini interviewed Sharjeel Imam for Article 13. Sharjeel said that prison teaches us to be patient. It also teaches us to stand up and say no if you wish for your rights to be enforced. He was asked if he ever regretted becoming an active voice for the causes he believed in. And he said, no, I don't regret it. There might have been specific moves that I could have avoided or worked on better alternatives. But as far as the overall trajectory of my life is concerned, I do not regret it at all. The die had been cast in 2013. The trajectory had been decided. In all these years, people questioned my decision to give up a lucrative job in order to read and write history. In Gahati jail, an officer once told me, you're probably the only computer science graduate from IIT in prison right now. I replied, I'm the lucky one. He did not understand my response initially, but understood it later. If by being incarcerated, my words have reached a wider audience, if these years of my thinking, reading and writing have reached millions, then what is there to be regretful about? Omer, in a note that he wrote directed to Indian Muslims during the anti-CAA protests in 2019, says that Shajil Imam's clarity astounded him. He wrote that it was a rare light amidst darkness and would have gone on to spread in the unlikeliest places had people thrown their weight behind him at the earliest. Sharjeel is your indisputable imam, he wrote. Protect him. Rally behind him. He remembers Hashimpura, Muzaffarnagar, Najib. His, His memory, memory strikes, strikes fear into the marrow of the Hindu state. state. Memory is not only history, which is actively being rewritten even as we speak, sleep, live but the collective memory of the pain, bloodshed and heartbreak of those the state has determined to be undesirable. There's all of this history and knowledge that we need to study and learn and let shape us. We need to let it move us and guide us in our relations with one another, in our labor, in our politics, in our descent. My father's father, right? He left Chittur. Chittur is like Chittur, Bellor is like a border of Tamil Nadu and Andhra Pradesh. My grandfather is the person I get my last name from, Bhupalan, right? So he's the, he's the original Bhupalan, right? So the story goes that he left Thor, went to Mysore, like Karnataka, and trained the British railways. It became a cook. And then he came back to Velour and set up a bakery. That's the story that's usually told in our family. Yeah. So one day my dad's like, oh, by the way, you know, your grandfather is like Mala family grazing cattle, right? And one day he's grazing cattle. And, you know, the Dalits are often landless, right? Rural places. So they are grazing their cattle on whatever lands are available. And oftentimes these lands are owned by dominant caste people. And within Chitur, the Nairus are a pretty powerful dominant caste community. There's a son of a Nairu landlord who sees my grandfather. So they must be contemporaries in age, right? More or less. Yeah. And he abuses him by his caste name. 
right? So he says, Oh, hey, Mala, I'm just now here. Like, hey, Mala, what, what, what are you doing here? Get out of here. And so my grandfather beats him up. <laughs> and then... Good for him, honestly. Good, good for him in the moment, right? But not good for him in the, in the you know, in the larger sense of the caste context there, right? So, so basically, the family, all the uncles and whatever, the elders of the family told my grandfather, you know, you know what, it's time for you to go. Like, get out, go to Mysore, go get a life. Now, when I heard this other version of the story, right, I'm like, oh my God. So my grandfather actually stood up to like a, like yeah. a castiest bully. Yeah. That story is like so moving. In the introduction to Waiting for a Visa, Ambedkar wrote that the, the problem, problem is how to best give an idea of the way that the untouchables are treated by caste Hindus. A general description or a record of cases and of the treatment according to them are the two methods by which this purpose could be achieved. I have felt that the latter would be more effective than the former. In choosing these illustrations, I have drawn partly upon my experience and partly upon the experience of others. I begin with the events that have happened to me in my own life. So how could I do any less? I originally wanted to name these episodes Restorative Justice and Militancy, which while straight to the point lacks certain je ne sais quoi. I hate having a position that I articulate simply because I am from a certain identity, mostly because I have so many different overlapping identities and often contradicting sensibilities. I grew up in a fog as far as my caste identity or really my outcast identity was concerned. So I have to be honest and say that I do understand the emotional heartbeat of your basic Saldali Savarna left liberal. talk about militancy i'm not talking about armed struggle from like a romantic point of view that any rich upper caste commie bro would or arundhati roy i'd be last to advocate such an irresponsible position especially in this hellhole of a country where the entire duja political apparatus wages their war with bahujan's foot soldiers i was born in velor tamil nadu which is a town with a really high christian population and dalit population When I moved to Delhi at age 6 when my dad got transferred there I was really excited to have an adventure and all things considered those 10 years growing up in Delhi were definitely adventurous Within my very first week of second grade I was beaten up by I can't remember if it was 4 or 5 but that's around the ballpark figure I was beaten up by Punjabi Savarna kids because I didn't speak Hindi They heard me speaking English much much better than their own and asked me why I wasn't speaking Hindi I explained that I was Tamil and that English was really my first language But Hindi is our mother tongue, they said. Well, it's not mine. It's probably what I said. Cue the action sequence. Being physically thrashed, and that too every day, definitely does something to you. Sixth grade-ish is when it stopped and resumed verbally from about seventh grade up until I graduated. I actually despise talking about this. But I'm trying to articulate my political sensibility and the context that it is grounded in. So no sob stories, and this is especially for my parents who I know are listening and feeling very guilty. It's not your fault, I didn't tell anyone. I didn't even tell my sister till like years until after it all gone down. I went to a Christian school, where I was the only Christian kid in class up until 11th grade. 
My parents put me there because they were minorities in a new, terrible, scary city and they wanted to keep their children safe. Safety isn't ever a guarantee. I know this in my body, in my sense memory. Here's the theory. Schools are a microcosm and and any institution really is like a microcosm of the superstructure that is embedded in. And even though my school was ostensibly a minority-run institution, these larger oppressive structures were at play. So I'm a new kid, right? Already alien, already foreigner, I'm South Indian, and we all know Northeast are so bloody racist. I'm good at English, super talented at school when I bother to pay attention, and I'm very, very gender non-conforming. And I don't speak Hindi. The first few times it happens, and by this I mean the group thrashings, as well as the general name-calling, pinching, hair-pulling, and my all-time favorite, being chased around, I told a teacher and was immediately told to stop telling tales. I sort of kept cursely trying to go tell teachers, but either I'd be told to stop bugging them, or the person who was actively antagonizing me would run up and complain about me, and then we'd all be arguing, and the teacher would just send us back to our seats and nothing would come off it. Real communal clashes style. I could talk about school as surveillance day, CCTVs and hall monitors and teachers on rounds everywhere, but no actual bullying or harm is ever stopped or noticed. School is a locus of gender binaries through uniforms and heteropatriarchy. School is site of state indoctrination as rigged debates and no questioning authorities. School is institutionalized Brahminical knowledge circulation, just to say ratification and mugging. Question and answers that you have to memorize word for word when no extra reading was ever encouraged, where the state-mandated syllabus was followed religiously, but only for the purpose of standardized testing, which is to say further ableism, classification and stereotyping, and Hindu liberal propaganda. School is a place where violence is sustained, protected and rewarded. School is a site that destroys horizontal or peer-to-peer cooperation and collective actions. Unless it is to exchange social currency, class, caste and cultural capital and to facilitate corruption, that is say, cheating in exams and tests and assignments. The violence was threefold, similar to the larger state structure. There's the antagonists, who are harassing minorities, and then there are the authorities, who are supposed to mete out justice, but instead have favourites and have never stopped any of the nonsense from happening. In fact, I was actively antagonized by many, many teachers at school for a lot of the same reasons that I was bullied for. My defiance, my generally disruptive reputation. And that leaves everyone else. In my entire schooling, no one ever, ever stood up for me. I spent years trying to figure out why people hated me so much just from the get-go. I went from being the adored wonder kid of my hometown to, I used this term intentionally, a social pariah. It was pretty miserable. The deadening isolation, the mistrust of my peers, the sense of always being an outsider with something to prove. I used to talk to the trees in my school. I didn't name them because that would be rude, but I do remember our conversations fondly. I said no sad sob stories. I don't think I've ever taken a hit that I haven't at least tried to give back, regardless of how much smaller or sadly outnumbered I was. They could only chase after me in races or in the game period, so I would run. Through the parked school buses weave in and out. Oh, and I was rude. I wouldn't shut the fuck up. I would show off in class. I would purposely call on them in class time and put them on the... I'd talk back. I'd make fun. I'd make the guys look dumb in front of their crushes. And I'd always carry a pen so I could leak ink onto the girls' uniforms. When they tried to beat me up, I would be what the bootlicking mainstream press calls provocative, dissenting, disruptive of the social order. I wouldn't do homework that I felt was beneath me or boring. And I'd lie about it. Oh my god, how I'd lie just for the fun of it. 
Nobody believed me when I was truthful, so I figured I didn't owe them honesty. I'd run verbal and intellectual rings around teachers who pissed me off. It could be because they slapped me or because I didn't like the massive horrid bindis they wore. And I made a promise to myself, which I actually kept all the way through school, which was that I was never going to learn to speak Hindi. I gotta say, like, living under constant siege is not thrilling, it's not exciting, it's really boring. It's sort of like you do get a rush sometimes when you, I don't know, either evade capture or you get a good hit in, but it's frustrating and it's a kind of frustration that compounds, it kind of passively takes over you. It's painful and dehumanizing and sad. I would never bald-faced advocate for it, but letting it just happen to you? That's worse. I think it's better to run, to sow chaos, to disrupt if possible, to make fun, to hold on to your outrage and your sense that this is deeply wrong and that it's not your fault. Remember details, remember what happened, so that one day if there's a chance for accountability or retribution or even just a chance to trip them as they walk past you, be prepared to take it. Obviously, this is just schoolyard bullying. I don't think anyone ever drew blood or left a scar. I think I did a couple of times. There's nothing like the weight of violence on Muslim bodies right now, on Dalits in precarious socioeconomic situations, places that they cannot physically escape. I feel like a fool now because I hate this country. I was suspicious of Hindus. I was paranoid. And now I feel like I was right about all of it. I feel like I was hit by a truck of like Savarna left liberalism in my adolescence and like in the first couple of years of college. You kind of feel like, you know, this country hates me, but I love it. I will reform it. I just didn't fit in in school, and this particular brand of politics gave me a way to articulate a lot of ideas that I'd had about how things should be, as well as this kind of sense of purpose and belonging. I had no sense, I would say, of the caste aspect, so a lot of things I just internalized. To a degree, I could tell myself that, you know, I'm someone who's... All of the things I said, all of these positionalities and identity markers or whatever, you could sort of say that, oh, those are dissenting ones, those are non-conforming ones. But to a degree, I was kind of, well, maybe I'm just not the kind of person who's got a place here. When this rise of Hindutva happened, this visible rise, well, in one way... To me, it feels like familiar terrain. Even when I was blind to so many things, in a fog, a daze, occluded to myself. In one way, I've been up against this since I was six. This violence is vicious, it's just infected everywhere. I'm seeing authorities, institutions, people who are supposed to administer justice, they are part of the problem, entrenched and intertwined. They'll kill you in different ways, but it's death all the same. Death of the people we could have been in freedom. Death of horizons that are unbecumbered. You can be someone who has a most educated family. You can send your kids abroad. You can, you know, wear nice clothes, speak English. You can be that rich Dalit in Mercedes. But there is literally no escape. There is no escape. I ran and I talked back and refused their linguistic and cultural imposition. I never made nice. I never made friends. And I just wouldn't ever stop. It's not resistance in a paradigm-shifting way. It's stone-pelting at best. I don't know why people do it. I don't know why I did it, except that how else would I prove to myself that I was alive, that I was a full human? That was a context from which I left for university. A month in, that's when I read Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth for the first time. 
One of my favorite Fanonian scholars, Ashil Mbembe, quotes in Transnational Institute dossier about Fano, and he wrote that, I myself have been attracted to Fano's name and voice because both have the brightness of metal. His is a metamorphic thought, animated by an indestructible will to live. What gives this metallic thinking its force and power is the air of indestructibility and its corollary, the injunction to stand up. It is the inexhaustible silo of humanity that it houses and which yesterday gives a colonized strength and which today allows us to look forward to the future. The dossier goes on to say that Fanon's life was marked by a permanent, courageous and militant motion into the present and into the specificity of the situations in which he found himself. What reading Fanon gave me was understanding. It made me feel human in a way that only rap music, Delhi monsoon showers and time spent with good friends does. Pakistani scholar Zia Sardar wrote in an essay called Fano and the Epidemiology of Oppression that was the foreword to a 2009 edition of Fano's Black and White Masks about the historically and spatially particular anger that characterized Fano's work and moral direction. This anger is not a spontaneous phenomenon, he writes. It is no gut reaction or some recently discovered passion for justice and equity, but rather it is an anger born out of a grinding experience, painfully long self-analysis and even longer thought and reflection. As such, it is a guarded anger, directed at a specific long-term desire. The desire itself is grounded in self-consciousness. When it encounters resistance from the other, self-consciousness undergoes the experience of desire, the first milestone on the road that leads to dignity. Dignity is not located in seeking equality with the white man and his civilization. It is not about assuming the attitudes of the master who has allowed his slaves to eat at his table. It is about being oneself with all the multiplicities, systems and contradictions of one's own ways of being, doing and knowing. It is about being true to oneself. Fano warns us to be perpetually on guard against the European unconscious where the most shameful desires lie dormant, against modern society where life has no taste, in which the air is tainted, in which ideas and men are corrupt and which spells death, against the idea of progress where everyone climbs up towards whiteness and light and is engulfed by a single monolithic motion of what it means to be human. Baba Sahib wrote in Untouchables and Untouchability, the questions that Dalits could ask of what he called the protagonists of Hinduism. How can the Hindus ask the untouchables accept Hinduism and stay in Hinduism? Why should the untouchables adhere to Hinduism, which is solely responsible for their degradation? How can the untouchables stay in Hinduism? Untouchability is the lowest depth to which degradation of human being can be carried. To be poor is bad, but not so bad as to be an untouchable. The poor can be proud. The untouchable cannot be. To be reckoned low is bad, but it is not so bad as to be an untouchable. The low can rise above his status. An untouchable cannot. To be suffering is bad, but not so bad as to be an untouchable. They shall someday be comforted. An untouchable cannot hope for this. To have to be meek is bad, but it is not so bad as to be an untouchable. The meek, if they do not inherit the earth, may at least be strong. The untouchables cannot hope for that. They ask us to love this country, to prove our patriotism. तो कुछ लोग चिल्लाने लगे देखो एंटी नेशनल आया है कोर्ट में गया तो चार लॉयर पीछा करने लगे मारने के लिए एक दिन ऑटो ले रहा था तो पीछे से कोई चिल्लाया अरे आतंकवादी ऑटो वाले को बोला कि इसको मत लेके जाओ आई कैन नॉट ट्रेवल बाय ट्रेन आई कैन नॉट ट्रेवल बाय बस आई कैन नॉट ट्रेवल बाय मेट्रो एंड दिस फेयर 
all the time haunts me during the entire witch hunt that i was subjected to and many other students of jnu were subjected to i was a special focus and i was singled out also as an islamist terrorist i mean just by being a muslim do you cease to be a good indian there is a supreme court which says that there is a right to privacy what kind of a privacy i have as a professor in this university not to my house not to my computer not to my relationship not to my love letters so there is no privacy in this country what are we talking about where is the supreme court so this is the this is the state of this country and i'm so happy about one thing that they, they, i realized after looking at the media reports and so on so i'm supposed to be part of a bigger conspiracy to kill modi this <laughs> <laughs> proves that i am out and out anti hindutva out and out anti bjp it's very clear i don't keep anything of golwalkar in my house i have mao and marx it is about what i have learned i am very clear about my politics and this attack if anything that tells me tells really that i am on this side of marxists on the side of feminists on the side of dalits on the side of students clearly anti modi but i am not thinking of killing him please let me reveal this to you i have not conspired i only thought i only propagated i was <laughs> and he is so insecure he is very insecure in 1967 in black skin white masks fano wrote that And 23 years before that, in 1943, as part of the forward to Rande Jinnah and Gandhi, Baba Sahib wrote that. No one can hope to make any effective mark upon his time and bring the aid that is worth bringing to great principles and struggling causes if they are not strong in their love and hatred. I hate injustice, tyranny, pompousness and humbug and my hatred embraces all those who are guilty of that. I want to tell my critics that I regard my feelings of hatred as a real force. They are only the reflex of the love I bear for the cause I believe in. So you see how fertile my intellectual and moral grounds were so to speak primed and ready for Ambedkar his words struck a bell in my very being Ambedkar woke me up Ambedkar raised me from the dead i was blind but my god do i now see so i i know you have an agenda right you want to talk about some stuff right yes. <laughs> Russell Le Guin wrote in one of her short stories, The Lathe of Heaven, that the end justifies the means. But what if there is never an end? All we have is means. Long ago, the great Frith made the world. He made all the stars. Frith made all the animals and birds, and at first made them all the same. Now among the animals was Elahrera, the prince of rabbits. He had many friends, and they all ate grass together. But after a time, the rabbits wandered everywhere, multiplying and eating as they went. Then Frith said to Elahrera, Prince Rabbit. If you cannot control your people, I shall find ways to control them. But Elahrera would not listen and said to Frith, 
My people are the strongest in the world. This angered Frith, so he determined to get the better of Elahrera. He gave a present to every animal and bird, making each one different from the rest. When the fox came, and others like the dog and the cat, hawk and weasel, to each of them, Frith gave a fierce desire to hunt and slay the children of Elahrera. Elahrera knew that Frith was too clever for him, and he was frightened. He had never before seen the black rabbit of death. Have you seen Elahrera? For I wish to give him a gift. No, I have not seen him. So Frith said, come out, and I will bless you instead. No, I cannot. I am busy. The fox and weasel are coming. If you want to bless me, you'll have to bless my bottom. Very well. Be it so. And Elahrera's tail grew shining white and flashed like a star. And his back legs grew long and powerful. And he tore across the hill faster than any creature in the world. All the world will be your enemy, prince with a thousand enemies. And whenever they catch you, they will kill you. But first they must catch you, digger, listener, runner, prince with the swift warning. Be cunning, full of tricks and your people will never be destroyed. Watership Down is this British book written like, I want to say 1960 by Richard Adams and it's one of my favourite books ever. My mom says that she was reading it when she was in the hospital the few days before I was born. See, social order is a weapon that they levy against us but we're free to use it and slip in between their standards, in between their lines. We don't owe them anything. People in power, in majority, love to weaponize this phrase, this kind of thinking. Does the end justify the means, they ask smugly, speculatively, sitting in their ivory towers and their South Asian centres of research in their Latins bungalow homes, in op-eds in national dailies. Reverend John talks about philosopher Emmanuel Levinas and his conceptualization of evil as a tangible force that reaches me as if it sought me. Evil strikes me as if there were an aim underlying the bad destiny that pursues me. We need to set our own agendas, not be rocked back and forth in an endless reactive loop with the right wing and their state machinery and the ostriches with their heads stuck in the sand. I believe that ideological purity is just another manifestation past purity and pollution scales. While people who can afford to dither and make little categorizations of who deserves support rallying behind, essentially quantifying the warp and weft of a good Dalit, a good Kashmiri, a good Muslim. One of my favorite political educators on Instagram, their profile is at Butch Anarchy, recently posted an essay called Against Liberal Abolition. 
They wrote that abolition does not simply articulate that innocent people are in prison or that punishment of prison is too harsh and traumatizing, even though we can and should point to both of these things as well. We are abolitionists because we know that there are no right people to put in prison. Abolition of carceral systems or carcerality itself is the goal. Liberation is the goal, the dream. Not better equipped jails or fast-track judicial processes, not better policing laws, not criminal databases that will streamline the so-called administration of justice. Scholar Matthew Kuriukos wrote in a piece for Dalit Marxism last January that sinners will become liberators. Only sinners will become liberators. This, incidentally, was the singular emancipatory conviction of the great OBC prophet, a carpenter's son who shook the mighty Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. This essay is titled Sinners as Liberators, Purification versus Redemption, the Political Theology of Bahujanizing. You do understand that we are the sinners to their priests, right? Our very touch polluting, our bodies demonic, our modes of knowledge production, Zia Sardar's words, seen as ridiculed, inferior, irrational, and in some cases, eliminated. Several processes of elimination are going on right now, particularly of Muslims, specifically of Muslims. I see the state enclose me. I see bad destiny pursuing my people. I doubt I'll ever see the end. Journalist Sagar of the Caravan magazine wrote in an essay last August called The Gita Enables Modi to Legitimize His Violent Erosion of India's Constitutional Fabric. If you are a person मोक्ष की कामना रखने वाले आप योगी हैं आपको अपने हर प्रश्न का उत्तर श्रीमद् भगवत गीता में मिल जाएगा मैं तो मानता हूं कि गीता मानव जीवन की सबसे बड़ी मैनुअल बुक है जीवन की हर समस्या का हल गीता में कहीं न कहीं मिल जाता है और प्रभु ने तो स्पष्ट कहा है परित्राणाय साधुना विनाशाय च दुष्कृता धर्म संस्थापना अर्थाय संभवामी युगे युगे मतलब दुष्टों से मानवता के दुश्मनों से धरती को बचाने के लिए प्रभु की शक्ति हमारे साथ हमेशा रहती है यही संदेश हम पूरी प्रामाणिकता के साथ दुष्ट आत्माओं असुरों को देने का प्रयास कर रहे It is hard not to see the comments as a dog whistle about the recent arrests of Dalit activists following an event commemorating the military victory of a Dalit battalion against the Brahmin-ruled Maratha Empire at the village of Bhima Korega. Modi's use of the term Asura arose at the time when Ambedkarite activists from around the country were reappropriating the term as a marker of their indigeneity in the subcontinent and as a marker of a historic opposition to Brahminism. 
Snehishish Das, an Ambedkarite scholar and organizer with BAPSA's JNU chapter, wrote a scathing indictment of the current administrative order for the wire on the 23rd of April last year. They wrote that the misfits, the questioning individuals, the thinking beings, the rebels who are made the second class citizens or non-citizens, which reflects in the current NPR and CRCA trio, Transgender Bill 2019, Babri verdict, the dilution of policy on reservation, among others. The stage has been for the oppressed castes, nationalities, sexualities and genders, the questioning religions, disabled people to be thrown out of the country or to the margins, left to starve without any state protection, a glimpse of which we can already see in the way that the lockdown has turned deathly for the toiling masses whom the state has abandoned. Ambedkar proclaimed in Untouchables and Touchability that kinship is the antithesis of isolation. For untouchables to establish kinship with another community is merely another name for ending their present state of isolation. What are the consequences of isolation? Isolation means social segregation, social humiliation, social discrimination, and social injustice. Isolation means denial of protection, denial of justice, denial of opportunity. Isolation means the want of sympathy, want of fellowship, and want of consideration. Nay, Isolation means positive hatred and antipathy from the Hindus. By having kinship with other communities, on the other hand, the untouchables will have within that community equal positions, equal protection, equal justice, and will be able to draw upon its sympathy, its goodwill. Being bullied for things that I couldn't control, I mean, that really did screw me up. I did run away for five years. It's jarring in a really good and healing way to be appreciated and we found a value of use from good principled people that I respect and feel safe engaging with. These are my friends, my family, and especially my newfound Ambedkarite community. And the bright metal of all of your rage, your ethics, your courage, your generative collaborative brilliance. I am not grateful for the harm done to me, but to share in the psychosocial affectivity of my kin and be part of our history and legacy of meaning-making out of these realities that are brutally imposed on us is a frequency of truth and reality that I'm grateful to be able to tap into, to witness, be a part of, and draw strength from. Ria, one of the oldest parts of the Bible in Hebrew is what's called Miriam's song from the book of Exodus. Now, Miriam is a prophetess and Miriam is Moses' sister. Moses is the dude who, you know, kind of leads the people of Israel out of slavery from the land of Egypt into freedom. You, of course, know the story, but just to kind of, because I know you're, you're not the only hearer. Moses basically goes to Pharaoh, the cruel king, who's imprisoned all of these people in some sense, right? The yeah. already abolitionist lens. It's yeah. there. Exodus, yeah. it's there. So Pharaoh is like, no, I don't want to let you go. Slave labor is so nice because it's cheap, it's convenient, can keep you oppressed forever. And, and then Moses is like, no, if you don't let, let us go, you know, I'm going to call on my God to send some plagues your way. So all the plagues come to Pharaoh and then Pharaoh changes his mind and says, okay, you go. So the people are escaping. But as they're escaping, Pharaoh is like, no, 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 this is too good to let go. Right? This is like a... So then Pharaoh sends his army to pursue the people who are leaving. And then this is the famous story of the parting of the Red Sea, that God parts the sea, the yeah. people of Israel pass through. And when the army, the Egyptian army is pursuing them, the waters collapse on the army and they're all dead. <laughs> what happens on the other side? 
is Miriam sings a song, Ria. Miriam sings a song. It's called Miriam's song. It's one of the most famous songs in the Bible, and it's one of the oldest parts of the Bible. The Hebrew in that song is actually older Hebrew, which means this this tradition of freedom and abolition and liberation is a long-standing tradition, right? Could I ask you to read it out? Yeah, one hundred percent. I'll read it out for you. So this comes from the book of Exodus, from chapter fifteen, and uh, this is from chapter fifteen, Exodus twenty and twenty-one. Then the prophet Miriam. Aaron's sister took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them, "Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider He has thrown into the sea." So Miriam is basically so happy that the Egyptian army and all these people who are riding on horses are dead. Now the important thing to remember there is that horses were tools of war in ancient Israel. So if you had horses, you used them in war. So when Miriam is rejoicing that all these horses fell into the water and died, what Miriam is doing is having an anti-war position, an anti-oppression position, right? Anti-military position. Anti-military position. Exactly. This is actually super super cool. You know why? They're singing freedom. They're dancing freedom, singing freedom, dancing freedom with musical instruments and everything, right? So here is like an abol- abolitionist principle with like exactly like it's like festive. इस घोर कलयुग में कोई मानव मर्यादा पुरुषोत्तम श्री राम को नहीं बन सकता, परंतु पराक्रमी रावण जरूर बन सकता है, जो अपनी बहन के अस्तित्व के लिए ईश्वर से लड़ पड़े। बुलाते लोग प्यार से दस आनंद मुझे नाम से, बुलाते लोग प्यार से दस आनंद मुझे नाम से। So Varnas like to practice, profess, and propagate liberalism as though it is the honey and milk, as though it is like the promised land. But I am so bored of reform, of candlelight marches, of pretty little infographics. Hindus don't care. The things that work are what have always worked: organizing, unionizing, collective direct action, refusal to follow bad laws, loopholes and tools and jugads to eke out a full life even in the face of carcerality and closure. Even in the face of genocide, for Christians as institutions, we need to follow Father Stan Swami's advice that the Church in India must open its doors and share its resources with people's movements. And this is not a new thing because a lot of denominations do it already, and a lot of religious traditions—Muslims, Sikhs, Ravidasyas, Buddhists—they're known for this. They're famous for this. Like we take strength from these disciplined expressions of love and faith. Also. Being rude, being non-cooperative, time theft, building slums and shanty towns, squatting, chakka jams—you can't achieve anything just by discussing problems, making petitions, and then waiting for justice. You should be daring and fearless. 
instead of starving for want of land, you should go and capture and till the fallow lands. I'm not saying this. This was Ambedkar in 1953 while advising the workers of the Scheduled Caste Federations at Gudigam. He told them then, and his words still echo to us now, he told us to be like tigers. from the Constituent Assembly debates on, on the 17th of December, 1946. The, the third part of the resolution gives some assurance to minorities and the backward classes that their interests will be adequately safeguarded. Now, sir, in this connection, my community feels that the safeguard should not only be adequate, but should be satisfactory to the Sikhs and the other minorities concerned. With your permission, sir, I would like to acquaint the House with the solemn assurances given to the Sikhs in the Congress Resolution of 1929, passed at the Lahore session of the Indian National Congress. No solution thereof, i.e. the communal problem in any future constitution of India, will be acceptable to the Congress which does not give full satisfaction to the Muslims, Sikhs and other minorities. Full satisfaction. Get used to thinking like this, living like this, demanding that, and not following laws that don't give you satisfaction. Back in the day when they had like duels and stuff in the West, that's how they would issue their offense. Like if someone disrespected you, like kind of like, you know, you take off your glove and throw it at them and challenge. You would demand satisfaction. But you can't demand satisfaction without first throwing the gauntlet. I ended up with this title over militancy because choosing life, choosing to fight for dignity, choosing to attempt to wrestle for power in the middle of this death cult is to choose life. To live, not just passively, but to be resurrected. See, I know we will win. The arc of liberation is clear across space-time. A sensibility of love and hate and passion that links all true revolutionary movements worldwide. Connections both intentional like the panthers roaring on opposite sides of the Pacific Ocean, like our subaltern expansive feminisms and gender explosions, like the deep red of true union power. But right now, in this particular temporal reality, I fear for us. I don't know the future or what is going to happen in different contexts, regions, different communities. It will be a multi-pronged attack. It is a multi-pronged attack. The noose is already very, very tight, if not already swinging. We need to cultivate a militancy in how we live, relate and resist. To see through lies, to make powerful alliances, to study, to practice collectivity and focus, to be disciplined, to be specific, trust our own instincts and to not look to our oppressors for validation, to be active and ready. An excerpt from PAWS Volume 17, Part 2. Greatness can be achieved only by struggle and sacrifice. Neither manhood nor godhood can be obtained without going through the ordeal of fire. Fire purifies. Fire strengthens. So does struggle and suffering. No downtrodden man can achieve greatness until he is prepared for struggle and suffering. He must be ready to sacrifice the comforts and even the necessities of the present for building up his future. To use the language of the Bible for the race of life, all are called but only a few are chosen. Why? 
The reason is obvious. Most downtrodden men fail to achieve greatness in this race of life because they have not the courage nor the determination to sacrifice the pleasures of the present for the needs of the future. It is the best and most appropriate message I can think of for the untouchables. I am aware of their struggle and their sufferings. I am aware in their struggle for liberty that they have suffered more than I have. With all this, I can give no other message. My message is struggle and more struggle, sacrifice and more sacrifice. It is struggle and struggle alone without counting the sacrifices or sufferings that will bring their emancipation. Nothing else will.